Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Our guest tonight will be Melanie Solomon, who is the author of AA Not the Only Way, and Terry Morris, who is with the Speed Project in San Francisco. Before we start with the show, I'm going to do a little plug for our organization and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a harm reduction-based support group for people who drink alcohol. We are free of charge and lay-led. You can get our book. It's called How to Change Your Drinking on Amazon.com. And there's information about the book on the website at hamsnetwork.org slash book. If you'd like to make a donation to support our work, hamsnetwork.org slash donate. Our first guest this evening will be Melanie Solomon, who is the author of AA Not the Only Way. Melanie, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? I'm doing very well. How about telling us what prompted you to uh, write the book, AA Not the Only Way? Um, Well, it's a very personal story. Um, I got addicted to prescription pills and got sent to a traditional rehab where I got indoctrinated into the whole AA system and um, proceeded for for over a decade to go in and out of AA. It would work for about six months, and then I relapsed and this, and then... So ten years, over 10 years of my life was going in and out of treatment centers, rehab, sober living, and emergency rooms, and it was a nightmare. And one day I had an almost fatal uh, overdose, and then when I came to, I said, there has to be another way. This can't be living. I don't want If this is life, I don't want it. So I started researching alternative to AA on the computer, and a whole new world opened up to me. I never even thought to type in alternative to AA because... They all said there were none. They said AA was the only way, so I never even bothered to look. And I started finding all this information, and I started writing it all down because I thought that I figured that in 10 years I didn't ever know about this information. There must be millions of other people in the same predicament. So what are some of the alternatives to AA? Um, there are several. Um, one is smart recovery, and they... Um, are based on like rational emotive behavior therapy. They are um, they view addiction as a bad habit. It does not view it as a disease. So it's got a different whole different viewpoint. Um, there's also um, uh, Women for Sobriety, which is a very um, good program. It's actually they it's it's become so popular they have Men for Sobriety too. So. Um, and it's like a 13-step program, but it's all, like, life-affirming. It's all, like, positive affirmations, which is really good. Um, and there's also, if you don't like meetings and things like that, and there's there's also, you know, there's moderation management and there's harm reduction, like you were talking about at the beginning of the show. Um, that, is, that is all, they are all alternatives, you know, and, um, and if you wanted to look at alternative treatments, there are treatments that have been shown to work, such as acupuncture, that's been shown to really reduce cravings, um, combining that with Chinese herbs even more, and then there's a the whole thing about nutrition and personal fitness and yoga, I mean, these are all beneficial and all and they can all help, and the one that I especially like are affirmations, because that's what, that's what mm-hmm. changed my way of thinking, um, you just, you know, you think positively, you talk, when you talk to yourself, it's, it's all positive, you're saying, I am good enough, I am... I am, you know, smart enough, I'm pretty enough, whatever it is. And even if you don't believe it at first, because I know a lot of us, when we have addiction, we, you know, we have a very low self-esteem and we're not Mm -hmm. doing so well. But just start saying it and saying it, and things will change in a positive direction. 
Yeah, positive self-talk seems to be a really helpful thing. That's something I saw with Women for Sobriety. They have the 13 affirmations. Right. Right, and that's why this program is so good. It's, it's all life. It's all about affirmations and saying um, positive things, whereas unlike AA where it's a lot of, like, you know, you have to make amends to people you've wronged and, you know, all this kind of stuff where, you know, it's it's just a completely different program than AA. Okay, what else is there out there besides uh, Women for Sobriety and Smart Recovery? Um, there's, I mean, there's SOS, there's LifeRing, there's... Um, what else is there? There's the Sinclair method, um, which is um, taking. They they found that a certain um, drug helps with um, the the um, uh, cravings, and so you take that plus you do that with cognitive behavioral therapy, and that's been shown to um, work well for some people. Where is your book available? Where, well, it's available on my website, which is just aa.notheonlyway.com. And it's available as a as a soft cover edition or as an ebook. You can get it instantly downloaded to your own computer, and it's just jam packed full of information. And is in addition to writing all the alternatives I provide, I, um, I this book is unique in that it provides a comprehensive directory of licensed professionals and treatment centers around the U.S. and abroad that um, have kind of embraced or know about the alternatives. They're not just AA based, so. That, that's very important because it, it gives people right here, a, you know, no matter what state they live in, it gives them some help where they can go, and I have all the contact information as well. Um, so it, it is very beneficial. Well, before the show started, you were mentioning Charlie Sheen. We heard Charlie Sheen say that he doesn't care too much for AA. Do you think that uh, he would be a good candidate for some alternatives? Yes, I do. Um, in fact, I, you know, I am trying to get in touch with Charlie Sheen right now. I think not only could he benefit from it, um, it could help him and help um, millions of other people. Um, but Charlie Sheen, he is, you know, he has declared that AA has a five percent, you know, five percent success rate, and that AA, he's called AA a cult. So he, he, he went off, and but you know. Um, he needs to be taken seriously. He needs to get his life together because his life, even though he's clean, his life is kind of a mess right now. And he needs to get that kind of sorted out, whether it's through therapy, um, whether it's uh, whatever it's through. But he could definitely benefit from some of these alternatives, knowing about them and and seeing what's out there. Because I don't know if he knows that. Yes, I think he could and benefit. And there's people like Dr. Drew Pinsky that call him, you know, bipolar for, for what he's saying, and I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Whether he's bipolar or not is a whole separate issue to be, to be dealt with with, you know, something, you know, a, a psychiatrist or whatever. But what, for what he's saying, it doesn't mean he's manic. He's excited. He's excited that he finally broke free from the AA reins because it's very hard to do. Once you're in AA, it's very hard to break out. I had to almost die to get out. I had very much the same experience. Um, being told that I was powerless and that alcohol was more powerful than me, that would just lead me to drink. That's the logical conclusion. Right. I, I could not believe that I was going to be rescued by some higher power. That just didn't fit in. That's not how I would deal if I had cancer. I would not expect right, a exactly. higher power to cure my cancer. I mean, can you imagine if cancer patients, cancer patients came into their doctors and their doctors only gave them one option, which was, um, you know, turning your will and life over to the care of a higher power of your understanding. I mean, 
that's it would be like, and what else? <laughs> you know, there's got to be something else, right? That's not the only option. But in the, for some reason, in the drug and alcohol treatment, you know, uh, industry, it's being accepted, and that that's really like treating um, people with alcohol and drug problems um, less than substandard because they're, you know, professionals are telling them you know, they only know about the one way, and it's it's. I think it's a shame. I think that they everybody has the right to know about all their options, and that's what I'm trying to do in my book. I'm not. Saying this, I'm not saying this one's bad or this one's good. I'm just giving out all the information I found on the different alternatives because I think that in order to make an informed decision, people would want to know their alternatives, not just you know get say that a hey, hey, that's your only option. And then if you fail, you have to keep coming back. And that's what I did. It's like slamming your head against the wall, you know. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important for uh, therapists and psychologists social workers to know that there are many options out there. Many times I. I sought therapy for depression or uh, other social problems that I was having, and I wanted to talk to somebody, and, the, you know, I'd be talking to my therapist, and my therapist would say, well, if you drink alcohol, you have to go to AA. And I'd say, well, no, mm-hmm. I can't go there. They always make me drink more. And, you know, I'd, right. be told, I'd be told, you're wrong. They don't. You're bad. They're good. You're wrong. Mm-hmm. And it was completely mm-hmm. invalidated and, you know, repeatedly. I had to fire a lot of therapists. Yeah, I mean, I come into the thing. I, money, many of the people that buy my book are actually therapists and other professionals because they're not taught the alternatives in school. It's just starting to get out to some school systems that is required reading because, you know, they, you know, they don't know about them and they thank me. They're like, oh, I finally can help my clients instead of just sending them back to AA and they keep failing. I now have all these other options to, you know, where where you know my client could could go, and so. It's you know to, to be a professional. I think it's absolutely a necessity for everybody—doctors, therapists, psychiatrists—everybody to know that there are alternatives and not just say that AA is the only way because that's harming a lot of people. Yes, I agree. It's very important uh, that people know that there are alternatives. You know, trying. They say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what I kept doing for over 10 years. I keep going back. Okay, I kept going back. And then it's just doing the same thing over and over again. And it was insanity. My life wasn't insane. It was insane. You know, it was, it, was, it was awful. And I don't want anybody to have to go through what I did. I don't want people to have to go through, you know, 10 years of, you know, relapsing and going in and out of AA. And it's, it's a miserable thing to do. And because every time you relapse, you ha- your self-esteem goes lower and lower because they blame it on you. They, they say, what did you do What did you do wrong? They don't say, oh, maybe AA is not for you, the right program for you. They say, what did you do wrong? And so you're always, you know, if you relapse, you're always shameful. And, um, I mean, I got to the point where they annihilated my self-esteem. You know, I came in with very high self-esteem. I was in law school at UCLA. I was excelling. I, uh, and then by the time they got through with me, my self-esteem was down the toilet. Yes, I can understand that. Um, Dr. Alan Marlett has developed relapse prevention, and one of Mm -hmm. the most important things that he talks about is that people, you know, it's normal for people to make some slip-ups, and they shouldn't beat themselves up. The more that they beat themselves up, the lower the self-esteem, the more they want to drink or use drugs, and it's self-defeating. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. It's the abstinence violation effect. If you don't mm-hmm. abstain, then you feel you're not good enough, and then you feel bad about yourself, and then you want to drink or drug more. Exactly. It's a vicious cycle. 
And so Marlon has talked, you know, you have to accept yourself and you have to be able to accept, okay, you're not perfect and not blame yourself and say, I'm ready to start over again. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you if you realize you have a slip, see, my big thing is in A, they, if they're very much about counting days, how much time do you have? How much time do you have? Days, days, how many years, how many days? And so when you go out and relapse, you don't want to go out just because you had a glass of wine because then you have to go back in as a newcomer, raise your hand for 30 days in embarrassment and say, you know, hi, I'm an alcoholic, my name is so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic, which is a whole other subject that I think is, is a negative affirmation, calling yourself an alcoholic and addict for years, even after you've stopped doing anything wrong or it doesn't do anything harmful. Um, but, you know, I think this, these pe- people are just suffering and it's it's, it's my mission. It's just my mission in life to help these, to help other people and to guide them and to be able to provide them with whatever information I have. Yeah, my experience was also if I questioned things or if I questioned the need for a higher power or questioned anything, I was told that I needed to go out and do more research, which is AA speak, you know, for go out and drink more. Right, and this and this advice sometimes kills people, you know. And the whole, again, with the relapse thing, you know, you don't want to just go out for a glass of wine. If you're going to go out, you're going to be like, I'm going to drink a whole bottle. I'm going to try some of that, you know, uh, cocaine that I heard about in the meetings, and I'm going to do maybe some heroin. I mean, they go all out, and that is what causes a lot of deaths, and that's what causes a lot of people to they have they think it's like a relapse because they have to count their days over again, and those are so you know important. They um, feel like they have to go out big in a way, you know what I mean? When in fact, mm-hmm. you know, maybe in certain times you just have a glass of wine or two, and yes, I okay, it's a slip up if you're trying to be accident, but it's you know it, it's okay. It was a couple glasses of wine, you know what I mean? It's better, it's better than a lot of things that you could have done. Mm-hmm. What of the various alternatives? So you said affirmations were very good for you. What other things have you found helpful for you personally? I found, well, I got into kundalini yoga, which is basically just a form of uh, meditation and getting to a higher state of consciousness. I did that because I liked, I liked feeling high. That's why I did drugs, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. this way I could feel a high that was better than any drugs or alcohol could ever give me, go to a state of pure bliss, and that was wonderful for me. That's just what I needed. Um, so that did more than any meeting ever did for me. Because um, the meeting I, afterwards, I just wanted to use more. That's, that was my experience with it. You know, talking about drugs and alcohol for an hour, of course, I'm going to want to go out and, and, and do it because I'm just focusing on it. So, um, But the affirmations worked. I had some cognitive behavioral therapy. I had to completely change the way I thought. I had to retrain my brain. Everything that was negative that I was saying to myself all the time had to turn into positive, and that's really when... I can't, and that, at first it feels really weird, but you know, eventually it just feels natural. And when you when you're saying positive things about yourself, about your life, about you know your situation, positive things will get attracted to you, and your life will get better. And you will see this. I've I've done the whole negative thinking, and I've got negative results all the time. So now it was it was almost like a test, like an experiment. Like let me let me think positively for 30 days and see what happens. You know, just try it and see if it works because it it will work. It's just to change your whole thought process and the way you think. Yeah, I also found, um, well, my background, I was raised in a very strict fundamentalist church, and I found that, uh, well, first of all, I should say alcohol was 
one of many ways that I rebelled against that. And having all this God talk put on me and, you know, need to be powerless before the higher power, all that so-called spirituality just made me want to drink all the time. Mm-hmm. So that was, well, that's why it's not a good fit for everybody. It works for a certain type of person. It's for certain people, you know, it's possibly working, but it's been shown, the research has been shown that for many others, for most of us, it doesn't work. So this is a big problem. You know, if, if I mean, mm-hmm. the U.S. especially is indoctrinated with AA. You, you see it in the media, you know, with the intervention and with Dr. Drew Pinsky. All these people are just endorsing AA and... And that's all, what all the people know, and they're they're not being informed of their true options. And that I think is really like unethical medicine. You know, I think that's just not that's wrong. Well, I think we've had some studies where uh, AA has not performed better than an untreated control group. It's something that we tend to forget is that uh, people will on their own stop drug or alcohol addictions. It's called spontaneous remission, but it's really people yeah, I've make read a big about effort. That. People mm-hmm. make a big effort. They decide they want to change, and they do. Somehow we're not so surprised when people quit cigarettes, but there's been this myth that, you know, alcoholism or addiction is 100% fatal unless it's arrested by AA attendance. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Just as many people quit on their own as they do by going to AA. Exactly. And the uh, you know, the 5% success rate it could just be the spontaneous remission people. That, so it might actually have a zero success rate. I don't want to really get into that. But, you know, it's it's not good. In any event, even if it was 50% successful, there are still millions of people out there that it's not successful for. And they have to know that it's not their fault. It's just the program is not a right fit for them. And there are many others that believe in very different things, and they read about it, and one of them will resonate with them. You know, if you, if you can find a program, that is, if you're reading about SMART, you like all the cognitive behavioral stuff, and they're giving you tools, and that you're like, wow, that sounds really interesting. Or you look at women for sobriety, and you look at their 13 steps and how wonderful they are, and you go, wow, that really resonates with me. I can see myself doing that. You, you know, do that one. You're going to have the most, the best chance of success if you're able to pick your own program, and that is what research has shown. Research has shown that AA is not any better or worse than any other treatment, but what the research has found is that um, the best predictor for success is the ability to choose your own program. That is is very, that's necessary, and unfortunately most people don't get to do that. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It's also, um, if you're depressed, you know, your doctor will try many different antidepressants. He won't say, well, you have to take Prozac. I only believe in Prozac. I don't prescribe anything but Prozac. They give you many different options. And, you know, right. they keep trying until you find something that works for them. Exactly. And that's what needs to be done here. You know, there, people are so scared that if they try an alternative treatment, they're going to relapse. Well, they're already relapsing in the AA. You know, millions of people are relapsing in the AA all the time. People need to find the right program for them. It might be a combination of programs. It might be, you know, some harm reduction plus, plus some yoga and so you know, and whatever it could it, it could be in some therapy, you know it could be a combination of things, but you have to find the right fit for you, whatever works for you, and that's really trial and error, you know sometimes you're going to find something and it doesn't mm-hmm. work for you you but don't be there, there's no reason to be hopeless anymore because you know there's other alternatives you know a a says it's a a or jails institutions or death, and that's a, just a bold faced lie if that's not true it's a a or any one of the many, many options, what they can do. It's it's just, you know, uh, 
you know, lies are being told to people, and that's what makes me angry. People are being lied to, and when they really need help and are and are not getting the help they need um, because people are so resistant to accept the research and and um, and you know, it's like finally the government has a rethink. I think it's a rethinking drinking website where they mention alternatives. So the government mm-hmm. is now saying there are alternatives. Now, 16 states um, in the U.S. have now said ruled that it's unconstitutional to mandate someone to go to AA. They have to provide options. So all these professionals, all these people are going to start needing to know, learn about the options. They're going to need to know about them because times are changing. You know, it, they just are. People are realizing, hopefully coming around and, re- and, and getting some information that AA is not the only thing out there. I agree. I see our next caller is uh, here, ready to go on the air. Thank you very much for uh, being our guest tonight, Melanie. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Okay. I'm going to do a little blurb now for our website and book and then bring our next caller up. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who drink alcohol. Our book is How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. You can get information if you go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. If you want to donate, hamsnetwork.org slash donate. Hello, Terry. Are you there? Hi, sir. I'm Ken. What's going on? How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Thank you so much for being our guest tonight. Can you tell us a little bit about the Speed Project and what it is? Absolutely. Um, So the Speed Project is a harm reduction program, and we reach out to gay, bisexual, and let me let the fire truck go by. Sorry. I live on a busy street. <laughs> okay. Alrighty. So um so yeah, so we're in San Francisco and we're a harm reduction program for gay, bisexual and heteroflexible men. And the project began about five years ago and um we're part of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. And the AIDS Foundation was awarded an HIV prevention grant to reach out because uh, there's a big correlation in San Francisco between speed use and um, new HIV infections. So that's where the funding came from for the program. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about what we do. Mm-hmm. Please. Uh, so, um, so basically, um, we host uh, a couple dropping groups every week. We have a um, weekly drop-in group um, that's just a harm reduction group. And then we actually do two um, drop-in book clubs every week. And we also host community forums and workshops, um, movie nights, which are purely just social events so people can come out and connect with other people. And, um, and then we also do outreach, and we have this amazing crew of volunteers who are from the community, so they're gay and bisexual men. And they um, provide friends with non-judgmental information and resources to encourage good health and support guys to party more safely. Okay. Is uh, speed use, uh, does it seem to be more common with the uh, gay or bisexual community? Is it? Uh... Well, I mean, I don't think anybody has cornered the market, <laughs> you know, on speed <laughs> use. I, mean, I, I, think, I think definitely, you know, you see speed use in all communities. Um, but in San Francisco, um, speed has definitely been a drug that's been around in the city for a really long time. And um, so, you know, it's, I, I'm sorry, I don't know any specific statistics about you know how prevalent it is in the community, and there's mm-hmm. definitely that information out there. I didn't I didn't prep it for the interview, sorry, but there's definitely plenty of folks using it. Well, what are some of the harm reduction uh, strategies or techniques that you teach people about? 
Well, um, I think um, mainly um, with with speed um, and harm reduction work with gay and bisexual men, you know, you do it the same as you would with any other drug or drug of choice or community. So you engage in conversations with guys who have life experience, <laughs> you know, um, doing meth, and you invite them to teach you how it's done, <laughs> right? Because people mm-hmm. are already practicing harm reduction in, your, in their own lives. Um, and so the wisdom's there, the experience is there. You know, everyone out there um, is a healer and a fix-it guy, you know. And so what we do as a program is we just try to develop and host program that helps people explore, that helps people get curious about how things work for them, and also it helps them see how things work for other guys. Um, so harm reduction with speed use, um, you know, it's just like harm reduction for anything else, any positive change. Um, so, you know, um, you just, you know, help people explore where they have choices, what people's own priorities are, um, what's important to them, you know, and, you know, and you just respect people's uniqueness and the diversity of the community that you're serving. Um, and I think also, you know, you really have to invite people to tell you their story about why they use speed. You know, um, mm-hmm. people use for so many different reasons. You know, people might be dealing with depression and speed offers an immediate way to feel better. Um, maybe people are on, you know, a psych med that makes them feel really blunted and speed use counters that, you know, and helps with that. Or maybe people are living with a chronic illness like HIV or Hep C and they're low energy and, you know, speed use helps them clean the house, <laughs> you know, or make their mm-hmm. appointment. Um, you know, and also um, people often have experienced multiple losses due to the HIV epidemic in the city, um, and SPEED has helped some people really persevere through the grief. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, so, you know, it is a pretty, it, you know, it, it's, you dump a lot of dopamine in your brain and you feel better, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and also, you know, some people use SPEED for body image. Um, people use it to lose weight. People use it to help with feelings around sex, sexuality, sexual identity. Um you know, confidence, vitality, um, and sometimes to shield from emotions or help people distance themselves from feelings. You know what I mean? So it's just, mm-hmm. you know, you know, so harm reduction with speed use could mean so many different things, you know. People have a lot of different goals, depending upon how things work for them and, and what's important to them. Um, so a lot of people that come to our program, you know, you know, some people work on money management, other people work on really planning their party out and um, trying to, you know, do things so they can maintain employment or whatever's important to them, you know, um, map out what days are okay to party, have a crash plan, you know. Um, some people take a look at what they want out of their use, what they want it to be about. One of the guys that comes um, says he likes to use for fun and not to numb, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, so so, you know, um, and some people make changes, you know, the location they use at, who they use with, um, what they do while they're partying, you know. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it's really a broad spectrum, just like just like any other substance, you know. So I understand you do uh, support groups there. Could you tell us a little bit about what a support group is like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we actually um, run a bunch of different groups, um, and so I'll just tell you about them. Um, so on, we host a, a, a book club um called the Over the Influence Book Club. And are you familiar with that book? Yes. Uh, Pat Denning's book is very excellent book. I recommend it to every one of our listeners out there, Over the Influence by Pat Denning, yes. 
Yeah, so it's it's a truly amazing book, and it's written by Pat Denning and Jeannie Little, and they run the Harm Reduction Therapy Center, and it's a harm reduction guide to managing substance use. And so the book offers an alternative to the disease model of addiction, and, um, and it also offers an alternative to approaches that view abstinence as the only legitimate goal for people who might be experiencing problems with drugs and alcohol. So the book invites readers to explore their relationships with drugs and alcohol, and it really respects people's individuality, and it supports people to make their own unique solutions. You know, and and doing this as a book club is so exciting. It's really fun. Um, we advertise it at needle exchanges, and people invite their friends. Um, and um, it's we and when we advertise it, we let people know. You know, you're welcome to read this book to apply it to your own life, but you're also welcome to just read it as an intellectual exercise, you know. You don't have to come in wanting to make changes or have an agenda with your use or your life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and um, so anyways, we usually just start the group with a check-in, and we make sure we have lots of strong coffee and sweets, and um, we actually do the group on Mondays. So a lot of times people talk about their weekends. Um, and then um, whoever's in the mood, reads out loud and we stop every few paragraphs and we chat and um, we do a lot more chatting than reading <laughs> so mm. the last book club it took about I don't know seven months for us to finish the book um, mm-hmm. and it was, it was terrific and it's the kind of book that really lends itself to doing a club someone could come in at any time during the book and just jump right into the conversation it's not like you have to read the whole thing to have thoughts you know and, and be able to really contribute it's great okay, um, but yeah um, so we we do that, and then um, we actually just started a second uh, book club um, because people that had finished the book wanted to continue meeting with their group because they really enjoyed being part of the group that read Over the Influence. And so um, we picked this book called Full Catastrophe Living, which is um, written by a guy who runs the um, – he's the founder of the stress reduction program at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, and it's just a book about learning how to reduce stress in your life. Um, and it talks about, you know, how to practice yoga and do meditation. And um, and then we do a harm reduction group um, on once a week, too. And that's just a group where people are invited to check in. And really the conversation happens organically, whatever whatever comes up after everybody checks in, you know, we end up talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and that group and all of our groups, people are welcome to come high, to come low, come sober, anywhere in between. And we make sure we make that really clear on our advertising and um, some people come who are homeless, some people are housed, um, some people might have untreated mental health issues. Um, sometimes people don't have a lot of patience or tolerance for waiting or filling out forms or being in a crowded space with a lot of people. So, you know, the way we set up the room and do the hospitality, we just try to do everything we can to accommodate everybody who shows up and to help the group accommodate everybody who shows up. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so just kind of, I don't know if you want me to say it all about how we do the group or just what the what the group's about. Uh, please go ahead and tell me uh, about how you do the group. Okay, okay, cool. I'm, I'm really lucky. I work with a really great team, and um, all of us do our best. And, and also a lot of volunteers help out, too, with the hospitality. Um, you just let people know, you know, that the people who come, um, you know, you want everybody to be greeted, you know, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, to know that you're really happy that they showed up, and um, you just you know that people are really sensitive to mood and situation, and your facial expression, the tone of voice you use, your body language, and a lot of times people are coming in with negative experiences with providers. You know what I mean? Like people have been to mm-hmm. other groups where, you know, so they watch you, right? And they decide over time whether you're trustworthy <laughs> and mm-hmm. whether whether or not you're for real. You know, are are they truly welcome to be themselves in your in your group or not? 
you know. Mm. So, you know, you try to be aware you're being observed and people are making decisions about you, you know. So as a facilitator or as a host, you know, you just want to check out your own energy. You know, what are you putting out there and what can you do to bring yourself in the moment, you know, with the person. Um, so, yeah, so we actually have people sit down and socialize with each other before the group starts and we serve them food and coffee. And a lot of people, you know, are low-income um, and rely on sort of congregate meals, places where you can go to get a free meal. And so people, and a lot of people have been incarcerated to come who come to our groups. And so people have a lot of experience waiting in lines for food. <laughs> so we like to give them a different experience where they're being served. And mm-hmm. it just fosters a really, really relaxed, welcoming environment. Um, you want everybody to feel appreciated and that's our participation is valued. And you just keep in mind, some people, you know, it's a really big deal to show up, right? <laughs> Yeah. And uh, for some people, you know, for some people, it's the only group that they would go to, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And and then there's just incredible flexibility. You know, people can come early. They can come late. They can, you know, step out during the group. They can come back. They can, you know, please, you know, you just let people know when you introduce the group that all of that is, that's fine. You know, that's part of the group structure. And um, <clears throat> there's a lot of flexibility. And so you just normalize that so people are aware that there will be interruptions, you know, and people mm-hmm. coming and going. So it's not a surprise. And, um, and you know, people kind of dose themselves how much groups they want or need that day, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, you try to support the group not to make assumptions about why people are leaving, you know, or, you know, because some people are like, oh, they just came and ate and ran, you know. <laughs> and, uh you know, you never want to make assumptions about why someone might be leaving because something might have come in the room they can't tolerate, and you just never know what's going on with someone, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if they do come to eat and run, <laughs> it's a harm reduction group, and that's perfectly legitimate. <laughs> you know, yes, it's glad they, yes. they came, you know, it's awesome they came to take care of themselves. Um, so, so yeah, so the, we just have, you know, check-in questions that people are welcome to use or not, um, and it's questions about how drugs are fitting into people's lives and how people are feeling that day, you know, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and then we just open it up and uh, figure out what the group wants to talk about after everybody checks in. Um, so that's the harm reduction group, and you know, it's 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 never boring. It's always uh, a, a really wonderful group of people. Um, and and we have a couple other things that we do. Um, we have a drop-in space. Um, on Wednesday evenings that's completely peer run and um, it's like a harm reduction lounge and we have a needle exchange um, that's all run by peers too. Um, so it's basically, you know, guys of life experience using speed are the ones hosting the event um, and doing the French exchange piece too. Um, and, you know, it's it's not what you would call like a formal group, but there's absolutely, you know, people, it's, it's really like people share so much with each other and it's a really relaxed space. So, um, it's nice to have, you know, different opportunities for people to connect with each other besides something that feels like a really formal group, mm-hmm. you know, especially for, for people who might be, you know, um, not at all interested in coming to a group. <laughs> you know, it's it's really nice to have, you know, drop-in spaces and things like boozy nights, you know, that, that feel less groupy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I saw you have a magazine called Speedometer. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Sure, yeah, um, and unfortunately we haven't been able to produce any new issues um, in a while just because of, um, like everyone, you know, uh, everyone's experiencing cuts due to the recession and, you know, it's, it's a rough time for everybody who does this kind of work. Um, but, uh, but yeah, for a while we had this terrific zine and we have about 15 issues of it out. And Spadovner zine is online, it's available um, <clears throat> at... Um, uh, 
www.tspff.com. And what it is, it's a um, harm reduction magazine. And it's got personal stories and um, harm reduction tips and articles and info about local health, social service, drug treatment providers. And we let people know, you know, they might not agree with everything they see or read. We don't edit or censor people's submissions. And um, so, you know, and the idea is that it's, in, you know, the, the zine is intended for gay and bisexual and heteroflexible guys who party with speed. And it's not really intended for anybody else. And um, it also has... Um, adult content too um, so it's got quality porn as well in there so it's for 18 and up <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah I mean it's it, it, it was a really terrific project to be able to work on and um, you know invite people to talk about their experiences we had um, round table discussions to get a lot of the content for the zine where people would come and talk about different subjects so you know um, one of the articles is about uh you know, people who are experiencing homelessness and who are injection users and, you know, you know, what's that like for people? You know, how do people practice harm reduction when they're on the street and they're, you know, uh, injecting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we um, we had another roundtable that was about people's experience with um, incarceration and surviving probation and parole, you know, and, and, you know, having to deal with that, you know, the sort of legal side of harm reduction. Um, and then people would uh, have contributed stuff around um, issues having to do with sex and sexuality and, you know, um, HIV risk and sexual health, um, stuff like that. Um, and then people talked quite a bit about, you know, everything contained a personal story. And it's basically like uh, a guy would talk about, you know, a lot about his life and then um, how he practiced this harm reduction. So, you know, every issue, you know, has somebody talking about, you know, how they do things, and, uh, you know, so, yeah, it's all it's all personal stories. Okay, uh, would you want to tell us about how you got involved in working in, working in harm reduction? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, well, uh, I, um, I grew up in the Bay Area, and um, I uh, have a lot of personal history, you know, myself and family and friends um, of substance use and sometimes misuse. <laughs> and um, and um, I uh, had a really close friend who was really struggling with heroin. And um, I wanted to find a way to wrap my head around substance use differently, you know, and learn how to frame how I thought about things differently in a way that would feel better to me, you know. Um, and uh, so I started volunteering at the Trends Exchange Program in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, I got taught by a really wonderful woman named Mona Bennett and um, Danny Lantini, who ran the joint at that time. And that's how I started. I started as a volunteer um, during Strange Exchange. And I was really, really lucky. I um, I, I got uh, I got taught by some amazing people. You know, I, I got to, I, I got taught by Edith Springer. I've really had the benefit of, you know, learning from the harm reduction therapy center folks. Um, I just, I've been very fortunate and, and, and most importantly from people in the community who, who use, <laughs> you know, who, mm-hmm. who've been really generous with me, you know, and, and helped me do a lot of learning. So that's how I got into it. Well, I find that's a really good way to learn harm reduction. I was interested in finding out a way to do harm reduction for alcohol so the only way I could figure out to study that was start volunteering myself at the needle exchange in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Nice. 
And so I volunteered on and off there for a couple of years. It was actually one of my best memories of Minnesota is actually the needle exchange. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I bet you met some beautiful people. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's the one place where everyone was accepted exactly as they are. And, you know, no one was told, you know, you're not good enough, you have to be this way, you have to be that way. Everybody was accepted just as they are. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, you know, uh, you know, there's such a heavy stigma laid on people, and people internalize that a lot. Um, and, you know, anything you can do to help people, you know, have community and connect with people socially, um, you know, I mean, I know not everybody that uses is isolated and, and needs that kind of support, but a lot of people do. Um, and it's, it's really helpful. I mean, all of us need love. All of us need respect. You know, all of us need to feel connected. And I think one of the things that I really um, think is the most helpful about what the Speed Project is able to do is enlist the talent and wisdom of the community. You know, I mean, really, none of our pro- none of our programming would be successful without the volunteers who who have life experience and who help direct what we're doing, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, and I do think it's, you know, it can be really transformative for people to, to volunteer and help other people. Um like, you know, I mean, it. Oh, absolutely. I was, uh, at the time I was uh, volunteering at the exchange, I was also living in a homeless shelter, and I will tell you that, you know, the opportunity to go out and do things to help other people was one of the things that kept me going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, all of us, all of us, you know, we need to feel useful, and we need to know that we have things to give, because all of us do, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. And you get so much when you volunteer, you know. I mean, it's, it's true. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, heck yeah. So it seems like part of harm reduction is uh, just, it's also mutual aid. It's helping each other. We help ourselves when we help each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, are there any other things that, uh, about the Steve Project that you could tell me about that we haven't covered yet? Um, I think, you know, um, we, I mean, I, I think another, I guess, you know, one of the things I think makes us have high attendance of stuff and keep bringing people is the diversity of the programming that's offered. You know what I mean? Like the, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. I just can't, I can't say enough how much having social opportunities for people that aren't necessarily apparently about drug use, you know, or health, um, really mm-hmm. helps people get connected. You know what I mean? A lot of times that's the way people get their toe in the water, you know, and, and, yeah. and having flexibility lets people come check you out, you know, and decide whether or not they want to come more, you know. Um, and I think, uh, you know, another thing um, that I've heard loud and clear is you want to do things that are interesting to people beyond substance use, you know. Um, yeah, so, yeah. You know, I mean, People have a lot of things going on in their lives, um, and uh, so you know we we offer a monthly workshop and you know subjects that would be relevant to people. So stuff about conflict, de-escalation, violence prevention, you know stuff about sex and pleasure, <laughs> stuff about the war on drugs. Um, um, a lot of people are on HIV meds, and so getting information about um, how street drugs interact with medications can be really important. And having a place where, you know, people can talk openly about, um, 
having challenges taking medications on time or, you know, you know what I mean, and really not jump, jump on them about it um, and, and be accepting and, and help them problem solve for themselves about how to manage, you know, taking medications and, and, and using, you know. Um, yeah, so, um, and, and also when, one of the things that's really nice about being where I work, uh, I'm at the AIDS Foundation, is the C Project is part of a larger uh, spectrum of services, you know, so there's this big harm reduction menu. I'm part of the Stonewall Project, and that's a mental health and substance use counseling program for gay men. And so for guys, you know, uh, who get linked in with the C Project, if they want to pursue um, if they want to pursue mental health counseling, mm-hmm. are, are you there, Kat? Yeah. Yes, um, then, then, yeah. Then they can get hooked up with a counselor through the Stonewall Project, and they also have a psychiatrist on staff that they benefit from medications. You know what I mean? They they can get linked with that too. So it's really nice to mm-hmm. be part, you know, of of a spectrum of services um, from really low threshold up to you know, you know what I mean? And it's and it's all harm reduction yeah. based. Yeah. It's it's very important to be part of a community and to be accepted. You know. And it seems like you've done a wonderful job there at helping oh, build a community where, where people can be thanks, accepted. Thanks. Yeah, and I was listening to the other podcasts that you had up. Um, I listened to a few of them, and boy, it's terrific, the series you're doing. I was like, wow, <laughs> it's really awesome. The, the people that you brought on to interview, it's terrific. It's, it's really cool you're doing it. Well, I'm very happy that uh, people have been willing to come in and talk about, you know, their work and what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, and I, I know one of the questions you had planned on asking is about whether harm reduction helps some people move towards abstinence. Yes, and you know. And yeah, and I and I I think of course you know for some people that is reduction you know um, for some people abstinence is heart reduction you know and and that's what's going to work for them um, I think you know um, one of the nice things about you know creating a space where people can explore and all goals are respected you know I, I heard your previous guest talking about trial and error you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm, um, sometimes mm-hmm. people, sometimes people, you know, try to find ways to, you know, fit a drug into their life that, you know, won't have consequences that they don't want. You know, they'll try to make shifts and changes, and sometimes things don't work out the way they wanted. You know, and, and so then sometimes people, you know, move towards abstinence and come to the conclusion that that's what's going to work for them. You know, um, mm-hmm. and I, yeah, and I just think that you know, having a space to explore where you know, you know, you're welcome to be part of this community, this movement, this group, no matter where you are on the spectrum of youth, you know what I mean? If you, there's no, you know, it's not like, uh, there's not, I, I mean, people put pressure on themselves to maintain abstinence, but, I, you know, really, a lot of the culture and the groups I do really support people when they're down on themselves and they're like, oh, I relapsed, you know, and, you know, people, oh, yeah. people really, yeah, people really, you know, want to help people, you know, take it as a learning experience, you know what I mean, and, and, a, and a place to explore, you know, what's going on, you know, um, instead of feeling horrible about yourself and paralyzed, you know. Okay, I think we're going to wind it up now, but that ties into what we were saying before about, you know, when people relapse, they beat themselves up, and then their drug use gets worse or other things get worse, you know, people need to accept themselves. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, it's been really great because, you know, some people who have, you know, decided to be abstinent continue coming to programming. And it's i got to say that, you know, there's this idea that it's oil and water. You know, if you're abstinent, you shouldn't be going to groups that people are using or welcome in or, you know what I mean? Like, and that's mm-hmm. so, it's, it, that's not how it works, you know, in the programming that, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to work with. It's, there's a lot of people that continue to stay connected and, and you know, talk about how abstinence works for them. And it's just as supported as people talking about other harm reduction goals, you know. So it's, it's nice. Mm-hmm. I have found yeah. that very true in our groups as well. People that decide eventually that quitting is their best choice, they still, they got to quitting by doing harm reduction, and they're very comfortable in the harm reduction environment. Well, I'm going to move on now. Thank you very much for being our guest this yeah. evening, Carrie. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Have a great night. Okay, thank you. I'm going to do a little blurb again. The website is hamsnetwork.org. We're a free of charge. Layla's support group for people who drink alcohol and want to make any positive change from safer drinking to reduce drinking to quitting altogether. Now, Stanton, are you there? Yes. I, as always, enjoyed your energetic and varied guests. It's a, it's a wonderful thing that you do. I wanted to take us on a little bit deeper journey verging off of their two contributions. Um, I wanted to ask you, Ken, what do you think is the single thing that most prevents us from accepting a harm reduction approach to drug abuse and addiction? Well, I think people have been brainwashed into believing that uh, addiction leads inevitably to death, that, the, that no one can reduce, that no one can change for the better. Um, this has been so much, there's been so much propaganda this way that a lot of people believe it now. And I think that really stands in the way of people making positive changes and small changes. Well, I think that's an epiphenomenon. I think the thing that underlies that, the single thing that most opposes harm reduction and a new approaches to addiction is America's decades, really longer than decades, love affair with the disease notion of addiction. I think that's really the driver underlying uh, the problems we have, getting our heads around a different approach and accepting uh, not only alternatives, but placing addiction in a larger human context. If you look at your two guests today, they were coming to harm reduction from sort of two different angles. Um, Melanie Solomon was coming from a, an addiction background. She had an alcoholism background herself. And she's saying it doesn't permit a different approach to addiction. And really, AA is based on a disease model. And the funny thing about the disease model that AA is built on is that it was created at a time when they had no claims to base addiction as a disease other than a kind of a moralistic anti-alcoholism approach. Mm-hmm. And your other guest talks about just a wide range of steep street patterns of drug use and abuse, people going into and out of problems, and she's really addressing a different aspect of it. She's talking about the human dimensions of drug abuse and addiction. Some people just use drugs. What can you say? Obviously, some people just drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. Some people hit a rough patch in their lives, as she described. 
and then addiction grows in response to that. Putting all of that in one basket and calling it a disease, here's the irony about it. It's actually a moral response. It's actually saying, well, of course drug use is bad. It all sooner or later mixes into addiction, and we need to eliminate it through some kind of medical treatment. So the National Institute on Drug Abuse and Norovolco's home mission is really, it's not a scientific body, it's a moral body. It's a body against drug use because drugs are associated with addiction or drugs cause addiction or eventually will lead to addiction. So let me, in this brief time we have together, trace the entire world history of the disease notion of addiction. Uh, well, at least for the last couple decades. When I first became interested in addiction in the 1960s, um, as a, in preparation for writing my book, Love and Addiction, I was talking to the sister of a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist. And she said, as everybody said, well, we already know what addiction is. She was in medical school, and everybody knew what it... Do you know what everybody thought addiction was, by the way, at that time in the 60s, Ken? It's a little... A little bit before your time, you know, so I don't know. No, I'm not sure. Do you, uh, do you know what they all, everybody thought addiction was? Could that be heroin addiction? Everyone thought it was heroin? Heroin addiction was all of addiction. To say addiction was to say heroin. There, nobody thought, it's now, we, we can't even comprehend now that people didn't think of cigarettes as being addictive. When I wrote Love and Addiction, which came out in 75, to say love, to say that smoking was addictive, was just considered ironic or crazy, um, let alone to talk about gambling or love addictions. And in every decade since then, we've expanded the concept of addiction. Cocaine was not listed as an addictive drug. That came in in the 80s, as did eventually marijuana. And so... If you believe in the disease model, this kind of uh, platonic scientific ideal, you must imagine that somewhere late at night in the basement of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, they were looking at a microscope and they said, Egads, cocaine is addictive. Even though cocaine had been used by Freud and millions of people throughout history, somehow... It waited until the 1980s for them, when cocaine abuse became widespread in the United States, for them to scientifically discover that it could be addictive. What's that all about? It, if you have this ideal, medicalized ideal, there's something called addiction that exists. Rather than being socially recognized and created and, and having a concern about. What people don't know is that uh, the new... Diagnostic and Statistical Manuals, a DSM-5, is being designated to come out in several years. And they've laid out what is addictive now. And for the first time, they've announced that a non-drug experience can be addictive. Do you know what that is? What is single it? thing is they... gambling? It's gambling. You're on top of things, Ken. And already, as I, I wrote an article in Psychology Today about this, um, in the magazine, where I said, be, certainly within years that'll be contested, but already it's being contested, and many people are throwing in another element to that mix. Can you guess what people are claiming most likely 
should also be incorporated as a non-substance addiction. Sex addiction would be the next one. I would You're say. on top of everything, Ken. You could do this whole damn show yourself. And when when you start imagining, people say, well, uh, if you can go to CNN, you can find a video clip on Drew Pinsky talking about the disease of addiction and how they're locating it in the brain and how it affects your judgment lobes. Um, in fact, when you start talking about everything that can be addictive, if you talk about videos, if you talk about sex, if you talk about eating, if you talk about gambling, you're reaching such high levels of brain operation that you're not talking about any specific mechanism. You're talking about global responses in the human brain. It's another way of saying what is in fact true. We're going to have volume eventually filled with activities that could be called addictive because some people become addicted to them. Shopping, um, eating, um, exercise, and none of them can be defined. They can't all be put in the same bailiwick of the brain because they involve higher order responses to complications in life. Which brings us back to your guest today and how we respond to addiction. Um, it, they're now, uh, I, tr- I follow uh, popular dealings with uh, addiction and their solutions. In the 1970s, they made a discovery which they said was going to cure addiction. They found the source of addiction. Do you know what that was? What that involved? The first prominent neurochemical family? Um, that, that was the endorphins. The endorphins. Mm-hmm. Right. And they felt that would cure addiction. And then every couple of years in Newsweek and Time, uh, throughout the 80s, they had, and often they had the same illustrations of the brain and the parts of the brain that were implicated. They were talking about, well, new scientific discoveries about addiction. They they happened every several years. In 2008, both within a month, Newsweek and Time, made a new set of announcements where a pill to cure addiction and the end of addiction, where they describe we're just zeroing in on how we're going to finally identify and eliminate addiction through some kind of medication or some kind of other medical uh, intervention. That's They've been saying that for literally decades and for longer. And we're never in America discouraged by the failure of these fantasies to be realized. It's a hope, it's a dream that we have, which is an addiction in itself. And so it prevents us from ever coming to grips with the reality of people's use of drugs, how it fits into their lives, how we need a multifactorial view of addiction and a multiplicitous way of dealing with it. So my current blog at Psychology Today, my current post, is about how we're actually witnessing a war of two different approaches to addiction currently. Um, Both of your guests today mentioned aspects of it, and last week and week before, uh, Mr. Steinberger, uh, they all talked about things like having a purpose. Your second guest said, well, it's really good to help people. It gives you a purpose. Your first, Melanie Solomon talked about meditation. Your second guest talked about stress reduction. In fact, uh, as I describe in my blog post, it's a wide number of people, even people who come really out of the AA movement, are now focusing on how critical finding a positive focus is. Okay, we have 40 life. seconds. And that that is 
growing in popularity at the same time in this war against the medical model. Take it away, Ken. Okay, thank you, Stanton, for summing up for us. Next week, our guests will be Mark Kinsley and Kevin Irwin to talk about crack cocaine, crack cocaine, some of the mythology, some of the realities, and how to do harm reduction around crack. Thank you. And good night.